News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. We are announcing today that we will not be sending any diplomatic representation to the Beijing Olympic Paralympic Games this winter. Well, that's Prime Minister Trudeau announcing the diplomatic boycott yesterday. So Canadian diplomats will not be going to the Beijing Olympics. What does all that mean? How did we get to this point? Well, for more on this, we're joined now by Rachel Gilmore, our Global National Online journalist. Rachel, good morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good. Thank you. So how did we get to this point? Now, Canada is joining several other countries in doing this, right? Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S., the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, they are in a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. Um, So basically, this is a um, chorus of voices that are taking a stand against China's human rights violations. Um, But they wanted to do it sort of without punishing the athletes who have trained for years uh, to be able to attend the Games. So um, basically, Global Affairs has acknowledged that there's mounting evidence that suggests the Uyghur ethnic group has been facing systemic state-led human rights violations by Chinese authorities in the Xinjiang region. There's also the issues in Hong Kong, in Tibet, um, and just sort of, you know, a widespread disregard for the international uh, order. I mean, you saw that with the two Michaels. So all these countries are coming together and they want to send a message to China. Okay, and what has been China's reaction to this then? So China has kind of been all over the place. Initially, they said that no one's going to care if uh, countries don't send their diplomats. Um, But, you know, experts have said that what China is kind of hoping to accomplish with the Olympic Games is almost a sort of global propaganda effort where they can show off their technological might and, and how far they've come. So, you know, if there is this sort of shadow, this specter of a diplomatic boycott, that, that's actually not nothing. But, you know, China um, then came out last night and said that all of the nations participating in this boycott will, quote, pay the price. So it's a bit unclear whether they don't care or are planning to force these countries to pay a price. But as we've seen before, China's not afraid to lob sanctions whenever they see something they don't like. So uh, I'm sure that countries are somewhat braced for, you know, some kind of reaction from China. Right. And so what did the what else like what was the Trudeau government's take on this? Why are they doing this? So basically, they said that they wanted to respond to the human rights concerns. I mean, as I mentioned, we've got the situation happening in Xinjiang. Uh, I spoke with one individual. Uh, He is actually Uyghur, but living in Canada. And when he started speaking out about what was happening in the Xinjiang region, he said that there's, you know, effectively what he called concentration camps. Um, China has denied this, but, you know, restrictions, it's very hard to get into that area. But when he started speaking out about it, 37 of his relatives disappeared. He hasn't been able to contact any of them, including his own mother, who he hasn't heard from since 2016. And, you know, just you should have seen the pain in his face. It was so awful hearing, you know, how how difficult that is for him, as it would be for any of us. So, you know, in response to stories like those, that is, I believe, what sort of drove, um, you know, the, the prime minister to make this call. So it seems that there's a lot of pressure right now on the Trudeau government, though, to talk more about the relationship with China, right? Because we're still waiting for a decision on the whole Huawei thing, too. Yeah, absolutely. There, there's, there's a lot of attention. You know, generally, China has been rising as a sort of global power for some time now. And I think states are kind of all over the place in terms of um, deciding how they want to deal with that. I mean, 
do you in this sort of global world do you uh, stand up against them and to what extent you know how far are different states willing to go and Canada is a fairly small country so we kind of need the backing of others so you know um, it's a lot more helpful when we all come together as a global community that's what the experts have said and sort of act together but you know the spotlight is definitely on Canada when it comes to the China file because of that Huawei decision because many other countries have made their decisions Mm -hmm. but Canada has not yet. Okay, so when it comes to the Olympics, then what does this mean? So athletes will still be going, but there would, normally there might be some diplomats that go along. That won't be happening. Exactly, yeah. So, um, you know, for the average viewer, um, the Olympics will probably look pretty normal. It's just sort of on the diplomatic side, behind the scenes. There's not going to be those representatives there that, you know, would otherwise be rubbing shoulders with other nations and um, other representatives. So that aspect of it is not going to be a part of the equation for the the countries that made this announcement. Um, And, you know, I I actually heard a really interesting story from a Tibetan Canadian who said that after the 2008 Beijing Olympics, there was a really intense crackdown on the Tibetans who were protesting. And that's because, um, as you know, this individual told me, there was no kind of international reaction to the Beijing Olympics. You know, the the U.S. president actually went and attended himself. And then, you know, things really, according to this individual, escalated in terms of China's crackdown of those individuals. So they're really hoping that this um, this sort of international action, even if it doesn't make the games look that different, will send a message to China. All right, Rachel, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you. That's Rachel Gilmore, our Global National Online Journalist, talking about the diplomatic boycott that Canada is joining of the Olympics. And my question to you this morning on that was, like, is that enough, do you think? Are Canadians paying attention? Do you think we should be doing more? Well, let me know. Simi at cknw.com. Don wrote me to say, I think it would be great if winter-oriented countries like Canada boycotted the Olympics. They have displayed nothing but disdain for Canada's and others' rules of law and freedom while suppressing their own populace. Don thinks that we should do more. What do you think? Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Break Cup is coming up this weekend. And you know, it's been played through snow, sure, all the time. Ice, yeah, fog sometimes, but never through a pandemic. So what's it going to be like? Well, Grey Cup week in Hamilton has been a bit scaled back. Let's find out more about that. Joining us is Rick Zamper, now host of Good Morning Hamilton and 900 CHML weekdays from 930 to 9 Eastern time, of course. Good morning, Rick. Hey, Simi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How's Grey Cup week going? Grey Cup week is going slowly but surely. Yes, it's a muted week compared to previous Grey Cup week festivals. Um, There are still things like the Spirit of Edmonton and some of the teams uh, collaborating on joint parties, if you will. Uh, In in years gone by, Grey Cup week has been littered with different festivals, one run by each team this year. Still the spirit of Edmonton, so they're still hosting theirs, but the other teams have combined on what's being called an East and a West Social. So one's at our Hamilton Convention Center. The other social hub, if you will, is at a restaurant in town. Um, still open to the public. People are invited to come in, but obviously they have to be fully vaccinated. Right. Masking requirements involved, all that kind of stuff. But there must be a lot of enthusiasm because, I mean, it's in Hamilton and Hamilton's in the Grey Cup. 
There's a huge buzz. Not only is Hamilton in the Grey Cup, this is the first Grey Cup in Hamilton since 1996. It's been 25 long years since the city hosted a CFL final. Uh, and it's, this is the first time the Ticats will play in a Grey Cup at home since 1972. So a lot of history wow. uh, is being yeah, replayed this year. And, you know, this is a, a Grey Cup that features the last two Grey Cup combatants. Of course, we didn't have a season last year because of the pandemic, but in 2019, it was Hamilton versus Winnipeg. The Blue Bombers came out on top back then. Ticats fans were hoping for a much different result this Sunday. So is there still a pancake breakfast? <laughs> yes, there is. Whether it's a media event or the Spirit of Edmonton or the, there's a Legends luncheon. Yeah, there's a number of different events that are still being held that they've, uh, they've kept that tradition alive. We have the CFL Awards coming up tomorrow night, the State of the Union or the State of the League address, I should say, from Commissioner Randy Ambrosi will go tomorrow. So a lot of the items that have um, gone on in past years are still a part of this year's celebration. So that remains unchanged. And of course, the game will be the game this coming Sunday. So that I always think about that, right, as, as part of Grey Cup festivities since the pancake <laughs> breakfast. And I know the game is sold out there, too. So what's the weather going to be like? What's the atmosphere going to be like? Well, the atmosphere is going to be, I can only you know describe it as being exhilarating because these fans have not only waited a whole two years since the last Grey Cup, but they've waited a long time to see their Ticats in the final at home. As I mentioned, 49 years is a long, long time. But in saying that, uh, you know, the weather for December the 12th is uh, absolutely phenomenal. You know, at last week in the Western final in Winnipeg, it was cloudy and uh, snowy and freezing. It was like minus 30 with a wind chill. This Sunday, the forecast calls for cloudy skies and a high of four. It's going to be about three degrees at kickoff, not a lot of wind. Uh, it's almost like a, a late October game as opposed to a mid-December game. So I think we've lucked out. Really? So you're hoping that works in Hamilton's favor? A little hometown cheering going on there? Yeah, maybe. I mean, the, the, the weather is always a great equalizer. If you get a huge snowstorm, it kind of mutes or at least, uh, you know, tempers down the offensive flair that we normally see in a Grey Cup. But in saying that, the last time in Hamilton in 96, it was a snow globe. There was about a foot of snow on the ground. The uh, Edmonton and Toronto played a fantastic final. They scored more than 90 points or more than 80 points, and it was one of the most iconic Grey Cups ever in, yeah. in the snow globe of Iverwind Stadium. So we're not going to get that Sunday, but hopefully an entertaining game nonetheless. Well, listen, I wish you luck, all right? So I'll, I'll just say, because you were generous enough to talk to us this morning, go Hamilton. Excellent. Oski wee wee. <laughs> Thanks for that, Rick. Take care, Simi. That is Rick Zamper and host of Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML talking about the Grey Cup. They've had their Grey Cup festivities this week, a little muted, of course, during the pandemic, but they're still putting on the show. And of course, the big game coming up on Sunday, Hamilton versus Winnipeg. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we here in British Columbia are very used to talking about drug policy and loosening things up and trying different approaches to deal with the, the different drug challenges that we have in this province, particularly our opioid overdose pandemic. And we've been talking about that for many years, whether it's making sure we have a safe injection site or decriminalization. It's a very British Columbia thing to talk about. However, I don't know if you've noticed this, but across the country, these conversations are also coming up. Other provinces, other jurisdictions, definitely having those same discussions. 
So even on a federal government level, ever since making marijuana legal, the Canadian government has kind of slowly inched towards a softer drug policy as well. There's a great story on this that goes in depth at globalnews.ca that you can check out. But we wanted to talk about this issue, about whether or not that, you know, quote unquote, war on drugs that has kind of really been the backbone of drug policy in this country for decades, whether it has come to a close or whether it is changing or shifting. Joining us now to talk more about that is Dr. Akwazi Owosu-Bempa, who's the Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me on the show. Do you think that we are coming to an end on the war on drugs? Like, is something changing here in Canada? I think that the trajectory is most definitely changing um, for a very long time, you know, the better part of 100 years, the war on drugs had been ramped up, really peaking um, from the 1970s through the 1990s and really into the 2000s. And as you said, with the introduction of cannabis legalization in Canada, and even before that, with uh, uh, medicinal cannabis being provided, we saw a bit of a shift. And I think most definitely now um, with the... Um, Applications for exemptions coming in from um, two major cities, as you've mentioned, as well as changes uh, at the federal level with the new bill introduced by the federal government and, and even signals from the policing community that they're on side with decriminalization. I do absolutely think that we're seeing a shift. I don't want to say the war on drugs is coming to an end, but we're seeing a shift that's heading us in that direction. And do you think, like, on the federal level, was it the legalization of, of marijuana like, and people thought, oh, the world didn't end? I think there's a, a growing recognition that it's our drug policies that are actually doing more harm in many instances than the drugs. And that was so very apparent, apparent with cannabis. You know, the idea that we would give people criminal records that would harm them for the rest of their lives quite literally mean that they would struggle to find employment, complete their education, secure housing, far outweighed the dangers of cannabis itself. And I think, you know, we see the the... Uh, toxic drug supply and the the uh, overdose crisis has certainly also uh, changed the way that we look at drugs and our approach to dealing with them. Um, the war on drugs clearly has not stopped people from using drugs. In fact, when you criminalize a substance, you know whether it be heroin, cocaine, cannabis, you create an illegal market for those drugs, which is hugely profitable. Right. So people don't have access to a clean or regulated supply of drugs. And we create this enormous market that, of course, criminal enterprises are going to enter the profit on. And so we're seeing that, you know, our policies are, are in many ways what's harming our society uh, as opposed to the drugs themselves. Yeah, I wonder if that's also it as well. We haven't we can see now, right, that we've been hearing this for decades and decades. And we think, well, what's really improved as a result of that? Exactly. And very little. In fact, the situation in many instances has got worse, right? Um, again, especially when we look at uh, issues related to overdose. I think, you know, for listeners, need to remember that, like, drug prohibition or, or you know, criminalizing drug use is actually a historical anomaly. You know, for most of human history, drugs have not been illegal in the way that they are now, right? We started off largely with opium and also alcohol, and we saw just how clearly a failure alcohol prohibition was. And we switched our approach, and some would argue that, you know, perhaps we have too ready, ready, ready access to alcohol at the moment because it causes a, a number of, of social and health harms. But from, from my perspective, and I think this is one that's shared uh, by many uh, researchers and, and, and public interest groups and increasingly politicians, what we need is a more sensible approach to the way in which we think about 
uh, currently illegal substances or drugs and the way in which we provide access to uh, these substances to members mm-hmm. of the public. And what do you think that more sensible approach looks like? I, I think it, it looks like the legal provision and regulation of all currently controlled substances and, and currently illegal su- substances. So I, I see a world, and, and this vision is shared by many people, where um, irrespective of the substance, there are ways in which people can get access to them. And the uh, level of access or the ease of access differs based on the harm posed or the dangerousness of those drugs. So like we can walk into a store now and buy alcohol, tobacco, or cannabis if if we're of age, we could do something similar perhaps with uh, certain psychedelics, psilocybin, perhaps MDMA, um, LSD, uh, more hard drugs. Uh, and some of those might be included uh, in such a model, uh, like cocaine may be available, but through a pharmacy. And for something like heroin, uh, that would also perhaps be available through a, a pharmacy, but for someone that has a prescription. And we see these models emerging in other parts of the world, Switzerland, for example, uh, with the provision of heroin. So I, I do truly, I think, you know, by the time uh, I retire and my academic career in a few decades, I think this vision of, of how drugs are, are made available in this country um, will be realized. We, we will be in a very different situation. And there, again, the main reasons are to cut out the uh, illegal market for these drugs, which cut, cuts out the criminal enterprise. It allows government to more heavily regulate and ensure that there is a clean and safe supply of these substances. Right. And we have simply greater control over the market and individual uses of these drugs. It's so interesting that you say that, though, because as I was saying earlier, this is something that we've talked about in B.C., for a while, but I always felt like it's only something we talked about here in BC and not at the rest of the country. Uh, no, I would say that these conversations are, are being had across the country. You know, there was a um, Health Canada uh, put together a, an expert task force on substance use uh, earlier in the year, and there are representatives from across the country on that task force. And I think they know the report of, of the task force, which is, which is now public, um, would reflect the fact that you know, representatives of, of different groups from across the country held uh, remarkably similar views. The conversations have certainly been taking place uh, here in Toronto for, for, for quite some time. Undoubtedly, there are regional variations in this country um, with respect to social and political views. And I think those would be, you know, reflected, of course, in views towards uh, drugs and, and, and drug use. But I, I do think increasingly, you know, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police came out um, recently with a statement uh, in support of the decriminalization of drugs. The Public Prosecution Service recently uh, advised prosecutors not to proceed with simple possession. So again, I think that shows that across the country, um, we're moving in this direction. Undoubtedly, um, Vancouver and British Columbia has been at the forefront of of this type of thinking and and has been pushing the needle, uh, the safe injection sites that have emerged, and and again, the provision of of safe supply, much of it emanating from um, the West Coast, and I'm and, and very grateful for that, very thankful. Uh, but I, I, I do think these views are shared in, in different parts across the country, and we're moving in the right direction. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you very much. That's Dr. Akwazia Wusu-Bempa, Assistant Professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Toronto. Great piece on this at globalnews.ca, asking the question about whether or not the shift is happening here in Canada when it comes to our approach to drugs. Is the war on drugs becoming a thing of the past in Canada? 
You know, we talk about it in BC, other parts of the country are doing it as well. Today, another significant milestone, though, in fighting the opioid overdose epidemic in this province. This is Mornings with Simi. Boy, this story is just so frustrating. This next one we're going to be talking about. It's a Vancouver-based charity speaking up after the catalytic converter on its only vehicle was stolen. Wait for it for the second time this year. It's called the Home Start Foundation. And boy, do they need their truck. And we'll tell you why that is. Joining us now is Vicki Stevenson, Executive Director of the Home Start Foundation. Good morning, Vicki. Good morning, Sammy. Tell me about Home Start. What, what kind of work do you do? Homestart is a furniture bank, so we uh, access the great supply of gently used or new furniture that's surplus, and we work with about 60 social service agencies in Metro Vancouver that are helping to house people. And so people get housed, and everybody knows, especially after the last couple of years we've been through, that home is way more than just a roof over your head. So people get into a place, but they don't have anything in their home. Um, And we go in and furnish it with the donated furniture. Oh, that is so nice. And so it sounds like you've been pretty busy. Oh, we are always busy. And um, there's tons of furniture that's offered to us. And uh, there's just no shortage of people who need our help. But what has happened? You've been unable to do that because it seems this, this is just awful. This happened not once, but twice. Oh, we could not believe it. Um, after we went through this in the spring and into the summer, uh, because it took that long to get sorted out, um, when we came into work on Tuesday morning and the guys went out to the truck to you know, get ready, start loading up to, for our three deliveries, so three homes that we were going to furnish that day, and I heard this bang, and I mean, it made our truck sound like a tank. You know, when your muffler goes on yeah. your car and it sounds kind of loud, well, imagine that on a one-ton truck. And we knew exactly what it was right away, but we couldn't believe it. It was just like, our truck is big and yellow, and it says charity and helping people all over it. Like, obviously, it's it's not something somebody cares about, but... Uh, we just couldn't believe that someone would do it again. Yeah, again, because it happened on May long weekend, right? It did. And so it took a really long time to get parts in because of supply chain issues and, you know, just dealing with insurers and everything else. So um, we were out of commission for a while then. And so coming into this time of the year, it just seemed like such a cruel joke. It is a cruel joke. And we've talked about this on the show before about closing that loophole because people can sell catalytic converters right now to scrap metal and detailers and it's not it's not as monitored as other types of scrap metal, right? Yeah, there's no way to tell. And, you know, I was talking to a friend who lives in California who said, oh, well, down here you can get your license plate number uh, engraved into the, the piece. Um, but when they've sawed out part of it, yeah. um, there's... <laughs> There's no getting it back. Um, so it's really frustrating that, you know, people are out there buying this. And um, ours was new, so uh, very attractive, obviously. Um, we're looking when we get something replaced, you know, maybe we get an older one put in so that it's less attractive. And we are looking at getting a cage um, oh, or some, some sort of cover 
uh, welded around it so that there's just one more deterrent. But it's hard. I would imagine. So, Vicki, where does that leave Home Start Foundation at this time of year? So are you unable to make deliveries or you can't do anything? Well, we're renting a truck right now, and we've had um, some offers come in. Um, we're talking to uh, a, a leasing company later today that hopefully will have some replacement temporarily for us. Um, but, it, you know, it's just, it's always, you know, it's an, an extra hassle and time and everything else. And our time, our money, our resources are already stretched. So it's just, you know, one more step in our day. Yeah. We have to go pick up a rental vehicle and, you know, walk around and worry about getting gas back in it at the end of the day. All those sort of things just, you know, really cause a time crunch for us. Now, Vicki, how can people help out? Is there anything else you need? What can we do? Um, well, apart from a new truck, <laughs> we have a 2005 vehicle. So, you know, eventually we'd love to replace that, maybe with one that doesn't need a catalytic converter. Um, but um, we uh, are running, uh, this is what we thought we'd be doing this week. We thought we would just be watching our online auction go up and up. So if people want to go and help out, our online auction is accessed through our website, um, and it closes tomorrow at noon. And we would love for people to go on there and bid um, and help out just with that kind of support. Okay, what's the website? And it's homestart.ca. I'm going to go check it out right now, Vicki, and see what we can do to help. Listen, good luck, okay? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Take care. You too. That's Vicki Stevenson, Executive Director of the Homestart Foundation. You can help them out too. Check out their website, homestart.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk about looking after seniors in this province. You may have seen that Isabel McKenzie, BC's seniors advocate, released a report yesterday. And essentially, it takes a look at data from the last three to five years about how we are treating seniors in this province. And you know what? The news isn't really very good. So joining us this morning to talk more about that is Isabel McKenzie. Thank you for being here. My pleasure. Good morning. So what were you monitoring here in this report? Well, this report was focused on the issue of abuse and neglect and self-neglect of older adults or, or seniors. And we looked at how it is that we are tracking and reporting and managing and, and measuring and, and moving forward and improving the supports that are there for vulnerable seniors so that they are not subject to abuse, neglect, and self-neglect. And what we found was when we looked at the numbers, uh, we found um, certainly a concerning increase pretty consistently on all measures over the last three to five years. So 49% increase in reports to health authorities and, you know, 69% uh, increase in police reports, et cetera. But we also found that within that context was a very fragmented system of how you report, who you report to. And we found in a a wide consultation that we undertook with uh, stakeholders in the community uh, a a prevailing sense that there's significant under-reporting. So we've got rising numbers, but also under-reporting. And so we've come to the conclusion that what we need to do is develop a system for uh, vulnerable adult protection, similar to child protection, where you have a single stream. You have one number to call and you have uh, good and, and robust case management and tracking. Okay, so there's that's disappointing then. So even though you were seeing this huge increase, because 49% increase in reports of abuse, neglect, or self-neglect, and you're saying that's still underreported? 
Yes, and you can see that when you look at the numbers, Simi, when you see, you know, that's based on, I think, fifteen or 1,600 reports a year. And even when we look at the police reports and uh, the numbers are, the, the percentage increases are dramatic. The percentage or the actual numbers are people are going, well, we, I know there's more than that happening out there. And one of the comparators we can use is to look at the child protection system uh, and the seniors population. There's a, a more seniors than there are children, not a lot more. So they're similar sized populations for the most part. But there's more than six times as many calls on child protection issues as there are for vulnerable adult protection issues. So that is telling us Hmm. that we are not uh, hearing about uh, a lot of what's going on out there, given that when we went and asked British Columbians, one out of four reported that they had witnessed uh, abuse and neglect of seniors. Has that, do you think, what's happened to that number perhaps during the pandemic? Well, it's it's still early days because one of the uh, challenges here is that the the numbers always lag the experience, and so I am very concerned about the cumulative effect of the pandemic as it's now entering. Uh, you know, it will be two years in a couple of months uh, since we started to face this, and so I think that next year and the year after we're going to see measurable increases on those stressors. So isolation is a stressor. Um, Family finances is a stressor both for the senior and for their family members uh, around them. And the lack of visibility that there's been during the pandemic. Eyes on people have not been as prominent as it was before because people have been sheltered in place for, for long periods of time during the pandemic. So we are we are worried uh, about that, and uh, we will be monitoring that closely. You talked about one of the recommendations made in the report I thought was really interesting, and that is just to have a simple reporting system. Because right now, if you feel like something is, is happening to a senior, where do you report that to? What do you do? Well, that is exactly the challenge. There are uh, more than 10 numbers you could be potentially confronted with calling. And, you know, when um, we asked British Columbians, have you ever witnessed abuse, and one out of four said they had, only about half reported it. And the main reason why the people who didn't report didn't report it is they didn't know who to report to. And when we asked people who hadn't witnessed abuse, if you saw it, would you report it, 95% said yes. Unfortunately, they uh, don't know who to report it to because only 8% know a designated agency. It's this obscure term we use to describe our health authorities and Community Living BC. So we need to have that centralized number. We also need an awareness campaign, Simi, because, you know, there was another story that came out yesterday about a woman in Penticton who lost to, to tax sale. So one of the big uh, risk factors or signals, if you will, that somebody is potentially either abused or is uh, neglected, self-neglect, is around erratic financial uh, behavior. And I think most of us would say not paying your property tax and possibly losing your house to foreclosure by the uh, municipal tax uh, uh, system is certainly uh, an indicator of somebody who may not be managing their financial affairs. And if we had a robust awareness campaign about that, somebody might have been attuned to say, okay, I think there's an issue. 
then they would know the number to call and that woman would have got the help she needed because she would have been referred uh, to the public guardian and trustee. The, the underlying system actually is quite sound when you look at it. It's that the, the system isn't allowed to fulfill its full potential because we're not giving people the information and the tools that will allow them to use it. And that's what we need to do. Right. So an awareness campaign to let people know, because you're right, if I, if you saw someone in your neighborhood or a neighbor, you think, well, do I call the police? Do I call the health authority? And what is the health authority? What number to call? It can be overwhelming for somebody who just wants to do the right thing. That's right. And what we know, Simi, is British Columbians want to do the right thing. And we've learned through this pandemic, when they have the right information and they have the right tools, overwhelmingly, people do do the right thing. People want to protect seniors. If someone was aware that, gosh, this woman not paying her property tax is odd, there's this number I can call. It's not the police, because that isn't really what I'm thinking about here. But here's the number I can call. And if they had called that number and an intake worker had taken the information, somebody would have investigated and potentially the, the tragedy of her house sale could have been avoided. Oh, that story just gets me going. Because I think, if, was she a senior? Because if she's a senior, then she wouldn't have qual- she would have qualified for the provincial program that would have paid her property tax for her. You're correct. Technically, she was uh, not a senior in our definition. She was 60 years of age. But interestingly enough, the property tax deferral program uh, kicks in at age 55. Actually, you don't. Uh, they're, they've made it 55. So that is a very good uh, point that her property uh, taxes could have been deferred. That requires an application. Exactly. Um, somebody could have helped her with that if somebody in, in yeah had known that. Absolutely, Simi. Absolutely, they could have helped her. Okay, so we all, it sounds like though, Isabel, that we all kind of need to educate ourselves, especially if we have seniors in our lives or neighbors that we care about, like we need to pay attention to this. We do. And and my office will be, you know, redoubling our our efforts, certainly around uh, awareness about abuse and neglect, and also for seniors to be aware of property tax deferral. Mm -hmm. Many of them use it, but uh, again, you know, uh, always, always, uh, we learn that we can do more. Well, thank you so much for your time on that today. Okay, appreciate it, Simi. Thank you. Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate, talking about the ways in which we can improve how we look after seniors. There's a lot of ways we can do that. But her report saying that, you know what, reports of abuse up 30%. That's just to the 211 seniors line. They believe there's significant underreporting, and there was a 49% increase in reports of abuse, neglect, or self-neglect to officially designated agencies. So if you see a senior out there who needs help, that's the question, right? Who do you call? This is Mornings with Simi. We've become so used to them, right? Those plexiglass barriers, wherever you go, restaurants, grocery stores, businesses, you name it. They help to make us feel safer during the pandemic, especially at the beginning where it felt like we were doing something to protect ourselves. But maybe that's not as great protection as we thought it was. Raji Sohal joins us now for more on this. Good morning, Raji. 
Hey, Simi. Yeah, you as you mentioned, these plastic barriers, they're everywhere. Some people call it sheeting, plexiglass, plastic sheeting. And I have started to see them removed at some local businesses. Not everywhere, but just a few. And I've inquired from front-facing staff who've told me uh, that they're no longer required to have them, while others have told me they want to keep them uh, in place. They were expensive to install. And then, of course, the price of them skyrocketed as they became a requirement at the beginning of the pandemic. And I haven't heard an official stand from Dr. Bonnie Henry on the issue other than um, saying that they were looking at the effectiveness of them, that in some cases it's helpful and others it's not. And I talked to a doctor specializing at the School of Population and Public Health at UBC. He explained that early on in the pandemic, we were unsure of the main forms of transmission, right? Like remember at the beginning when there was uh, mm-hmm. all that interest in uh, bleaching surfaces, right. hand sanitizing a million times a day. And now we know for sure it's airborne. The COVID-19 and coronavirus is uh, airborne. So that's where plexiglass barriers came into play. We thought, okay, it's airborne. So let's block that air transfer between two people. Say you're a cashier and a paying customer, just block that air um, and people wouldn't transmit the disease or the virus so quickly. Well, here's Dr. Michael Brower on that. So if you could think about somebody coughing or even sneezing, um, there may be like visible droplets. Um, and that in, in that kind of context, um, plexiglass would provide some protection. Um, so a physical barrier between that wouldn't allow that, you know, sneezing that those moist uh, droplets to uh, come in contact with another person. What we're understanding now, though, is that um, most of COVID transmission, um, if not all of it, is uh, basically airborne um, particles. So these are just floating around in the air um, as we just breathe in and out. Um, uh, we're exhaling these these particles that float around in the air and they can travel um, great distances and actually are small enough that they remain suspended in the air for quite a long period of time. So that plexiglass barrier really doesn't provide any protection um, if you're sharing an airspace. So the air is you know mixing um, around that plexiglass barrier uh, above it. Yeah, Simi. And so this is also why we have been cautioned around talking loudly, uh, yelling, um, singing even. Here's Dr. Michael Brower on that. We also know that it's not um, necessarily, you know, sneezing or coughing, um, but just talking. And there's been some quite high profile cases where, you know, for example, people singing, so it's sort of how, you know, how much are you um, using your voice um, in, in some way that determines how many of these particles are, are coming into the air. So if you're talking more, if you're talking more loudly, or if you're shouting or singing, um, all those things increase the, the number of these particles that you'll ex- expire into the air. Yeah. So Simi, take, for example, uh, the cafe that I go to, okay, at the bakery that I go to quite regularly, they've had these plastic barriers in place, but they've also been blasting very loud music. So the cashier has to yell to me. Oh, don't get me started. Yes. And then I have to yell back. And then in many cases, I see people, uh, a lot of elderly people, they're having trouble hearing over the music, the plexiglass, the masks. So they move their face physically to the side of the barrier to shout. Everybody does that, though. Everybody has to do that because you can't hear what anybody is saying. 
And you can't do any lip reading because of the masks. So the plexiglass in those cases has actually created a more risky situation, right? With increased transfer of airborne particles, all the shouting and, and yelling, but also um, they reduce ventilation. Having those barriers actually could uh, reduce the amount of fresh air ventilation that's getting into one space or the other. So take the example of a, um, a small convenience store where the checkout clerk is now enclosed, partially enclosed with plexiglass barriers, but the main ventilation that's providing fresh air is actually outside of that space. Now they're actually not benefiting from um, fresh air that's coming in uh, to, to that environment. I find this so interesting though, Raji, because clearly as the pandemic has gone on and as we have gotten variants, right, of COVID-19, the variants change the virus, but it also changes our thinking of them because that changes too. Yeah. And I have also talked to some business owners who've told me they don't want to take the plastic barriers down, even if they're told to, because they don't know how the future variants might mutate. And that maybe down the line, it would change so that it's not strictly aerosol and we would want these barriers. But as sneeze guards, Simi, these plastic barriers can be effective in preventing, for example, like the flu. Um, But in a best case scenario, the doctor told me everyone is masking with, uh, you know, N95s so that they are protecting themselves and others. Um, And he told me the distance is an important one, but that it's not enough because so, so COVID-19 is not passed through droplets so much as aerosol. And he talked about there how aerosol floats. Um, He told me about a case of people getting infected at a party after the infected people had left and been gone for an hour. So the aerosol was just kind of hovering in the air. And that was enough that an hour later, people going into the same space, breathing, talking, being in proximity with one another in that space, and then uh, the virus uh, transmitted. So uh, these barriers, ultimately, I think like they do provide a false sense of security and safety, but in many ways, they are creating the opposite of what we want. It's interesting because they've become so ubiquitous, right? Like you're just, you're used to them. I, I, I can't think of last time I went into a place that didn't have them. So I wonder what that would be like now. After it's, been, it's been almost two years. Yeah. And once they were installed, I, I recall uh, asking some grocery clerks like, oh, do you feel safer? And across the board, they, everyone was telling me that they felt safer, uh, you know, because if they're coming into contact with so many customers, well, yeah, um, yeah it, they didn't feel so safe at the beginning. The glass went up, they felt safer. But then you and I were talking about this shouting thing and people like aspirating more in the air, more uh, talking louder and more aerosol being exchanged there, you begin to question all this. Now, some I've, I've read some accounts online of people saying, oh, the government hasn't figured it out. The health officials haven't figured it out. This is annoying, asking us to, to go this way and then the next. For sure, it's annoying. But I also uh, appreciate that they're trying to follow the, the science as closely as possible and adapt when needed. I mean, remember right at the beginning of the pandemic, do you, do you recall that uh, yellow caution tape that was <laughs> bound around yes. all the playgrounds and like, yes. Avoid, avoid. Well, thankfully, we we don't have to do any of that anymore. So, so well, it'll be. I'm curious to see where this all lands with the the plastic barriers. All right. Well, thank you so much for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. This is mornings with Simi. 
Right now, we're going to talk about some BC history because, you know, there's one person we know who loves to dig into local history, and that is BC author Aaron Chapman. His latest book is called Vancouver Vice, Crime and Spectacle in the City's West End, and he joins us now to talk about that. Good morning, Aaron. Good morning, Simi. Wonderful to be with you. Well, nice to have you here. So tell me, why did you decide to dive into the West End this time around? Well, I thought it was an interesting uh, subject of those years. Um, you know, if you've been living in Vancouver, you're more moved here more recently, or maybe if you've been living here, you know, twenty almost or thirty years, you wouldn't have a, any memory of of what happened in a very turbulent time in the West End in the 1970s and early 80s. Um, and if you were, were living here in that time, it feels uh, uh, so distantly away. If you walk through the West End these days, there's almost no hint of the the turbulence, as I say, that the uh, that the city uh, went through in those years, particularly in the West End. Right. Okay, so we're talking about the 1970s, early 80s. What was going on? Well, there was a, uh, the, the issue that many people remember is the issue of street prostitution that was happening in the West End. It's not something you really see anywhere on the streets. You see a little bit in the downtown east side still, but, uh, you know, it's, it's largely that's an issue that's, that's gone from our neighborhoods. But while that is, is very well remembered at that time, and there was a Shame the Johns campaign, and there was neighborhood groups that sort of really put the, uh, almost sort of created a little bit of a civil war in the neighborhood. Uh, what's interesting, when you take a step back, there was a whole crime wave of, of things going on in the West End. There, there were more murders in 1982 in the West End than there were in the downtown east side. There was incidents of, of, of gambling and drugs and crime and all sorts of things that were happening. That It almost, it almost doesn't seem like that was the, uh, could ever have happened in Vancouver as it did then. It really doesn't when you describe that neighborhood versus what was here now. So how, how did sort of the powers that be of the day respond to that? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I spoke to a lot of uh, former, uh, you know, retired Vancouver Police Department guys that had been on the vice squad in those years, uh, men and women who had been, worked in it. And it was, it was interesting to hear their memories of, of some of the things that they, they encountered it. Was, some of it seemed so shocking to me that it felt like it was just Times Square in the seventies or, or the Sunset Strip because just there were there were a number of the of the prostitution, the street prostitution, the sex workers. There was a study that counted about two or three hundred that were working in that neighborhood, men, women, transgendered uh, at that time, and and that period of time is remembered. And, and some people today walking around the West End might. Uh, or particularly driving around the West End, will still see some of the barricades or the street curbs that have pulled up or, or streets you can't turn left down because there's a little sort of park in front of the apartment building now. Well, those were all put in 40 years ago. And it seems a long time to call that now, but in many ways doesn't seem that great the memory of, if, especially for people who were our age. There were kids then. They might have remembered the news stories at the time, but and of course older people as well. But those barricades were put in that month, uh, 40 years ago, to um, to ostensibly curb the, the street prostitution problem. And they're still there today. But we walk through them today as parks. Uh, but that's their hidden meaning, uh, if you will. Oh, that's so interesting. So where do you like even start to dig into the research? You said you talk to people as well. But like, how does that process start for you? Well, it's it's an interesting thing because uh, after this is my fifth book now. So after a few of I, I do have people that, that reach out to me and, and often tell me a good story or whatnot. In many ways, this book actually grew out of a, an earlier book I, I wrote called The Last Gang in Town right. about East Vancouver street gangs in the 1970s. Another sort of strange uh, thing that we, we don't have street gangs in Vancouver anymore, but it was something a prevalent thing in the 1970s. And one of the police officers in that book told me about some of the work that he did in the West End then. And that, uh, he sat down with me, and I remember a five-minute story he told me, and I thought, boy, that's it was so fascinating. It was something like out of a movie that I thought, that's the next book I'm going to write. There's, but there's so many interesting stories in Vancouver that uh, throughout these years, and and, uh, and geez, this is just one of them. 
Because we, we often get like the impression that we're not very good at at keeping our history, right? We, we tend to pave it over or build something new. So how have you found it? Like the process of kind of digging back into history and finding those stories? Well, I hear that all the time from people who say, you know, Vancouver doesn't have any history because it's such a young city. I always disagree with that because it's almost more fascinating because the, the, much of the city's history has happened before our very lives uh, and before our very eyes, pardon me, and, and within our own, our, our own living uh, here in town. Um, I would say if, you, if you're new to Vancouver, you've only been living here five years, you can call yourself a Vancouver historian because the city changes as, you know, so quickly, especially downtown. But, you yeah. know, there's an interesting thing that, that I always sort of sometimes get in debates with people. that People often say, you know, Vancouver used to be better back in the day. And, and before Expo, we were this sort of wonderful little small town oasis. And, ah, were we? Know, <laughs> some of the, that's, that's just it. I think some of the things that I get into with, with some of my books sort of, often sort of maybe dispel that rumor that we should be happy that we left some of this stuff behind or we have moved on. But, uh, you know, the case I make in the book is that these were some of the wildest years in, the, in not only just in the West End, but the whole city at the time. I mean, 1981, we've got the Clifford Olsen murders. In 1982, it's the Squamish Five. You know, things that just that we as a city weren't encountering before. And this was happening, you know, on, on a, in a neighborhood level. You know, this was an interesting time because, I, as I've said, it, it's interesting because there was a Trudeau in office, the neighbors in Vancouver, police were complaining because the city had many people felt the city had lost control of its neighborhoods. That's something that we're talking hmm. about today. There was yeah. a, there was a new new virus emerging that we didn't know necessarily about. That now it's a little bit reductive to compare AIDS to COVID in that sense. But some of the same fears were happening back then, and we're still talking about. You know, it's interesting. I know it's been a topic on the station many many times of of people feeling unsafe uh, to go out at yeah. night in Vancouver. Well, this was something that we were talking about forty years ago in an even more heightened way. So, what changed then, Aaron? Like when we talk about how that's the way it used to be, what what changed from then? Well, you know, Expo is is a, is a benchmark. It time. really it is, is particularly the years just prior to that, in terms of the street prostitution in the West End, infamously, there was a, an injunction that was brought forth uh, by the B.C. Attorney General, Brian Smith, and that essentially pushed the sex workers out of the West End. And many people make the point that that sort of pushed them into less safe neighborhoods eventually and, and, and whatnot. It wasn't necessarily so connected as that, and, and it's a bit of a longer story, but the case can be made, and we have the sex workers memorial today down at, at off, just off Davie and Jervis. But essentially, the, the, the rise of, of, of that crime wave started to taper off. And then sort of as, as you know, the police were more and more active in that neighborhood, it, it, put, it, it stopped that area. And then, it, it, of course, it comes up somewhere else. Right. It's always the nature of, of any kind of policing in, in, in any city in that regard. I was thinking that it moved to Mount Pleasant. Right. I remember that. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly right to me. Yeah, yeah. I remember that late 80s, early 90s, that that's where you saw a lot of the prostitution. And the, that was kind of the area that everybody knew that's where that happened. Exactly. And then the neighbors, the neighbor up there had to do with it. It seems it's interesting because particularly with that issue, and there's more than just prostitution that dealt with in the book, but everything that we tried back then to solve it sort of went wrong. Initially, they were on Davie Street. So the sex workers sort of were pushed off from the residential neighborhoods. Then the people in the residential neighborhoods started to complain. So then eventually that injunction came in. So we've, it's, it, it almost it made, would have made sense at the time, of course, to somebody to say, well, maybe the only way we can solve this is with a red light district of some time. But, you know, it, it, that, was, that was not something that would have gone over well then. And I don't know if it would go over well now. You exactly. Know, the way property values are in Vancouver, I don't think anybody necessarily would want to agree, even if they live next to a, an industrial area that might at night serve that purpose. It would still just be as controversial today as it is then. But the nature of the, of, the, of the crime has changed necessarily. It's hard to imagine that necessarily happening 
on the streets again. It all sort of happens online, I guess, now. And I guess so. Yeah. Well, I'm putting but, your uh, book and, and, on, on my Christmas list, Aaron. I'm done. That's it. That's it. I'm, that's well, my Christmas that's shopping. Nice. <laughs> uh, excellent. Thank you, Cindy. Yeah. Well, thank you for nothing joining sa- us this morning. Sa- nothing, says, nothing says a great Christmas gift than a true crime story in Vancouver. <laughs> that's so true. Thanks, Aaron. Yeah. Thanks very much, Jimmy. All right. Aaron Chapman is the author of Vancouver Vice, Crime and Spectacle in the City's West End. It is, it is his latest book delving into the history, kind of the seedier side of our city, the history there. You should definitely check it out, that or one of his previous books, too. You'll learn an awful lot about Vancouver history if you do.